following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place to give him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's holy word. It was the end of July in 1981 that Lady Diana Spencer of England married Prince Charles in what we all know now to have been a tragically star-crossed marriage long since ended. The usual wedding jitters were there that day that I see close at hand quite often. Even an, an event uh, as, as massive in scale as that was involving the royalty of England and a TV audience of a billion or something, they were still human beings. And I remember well getting up with my wife and an 11-year-old daughter who wasn't going to miss that wedding for anything at 5 o'clock or something in the morning to see it live from England and watching Diana tremble and stumble a little bit as she had to give the four proper names of her husband in, in what she was to say. She was supposed to say, I, Diana, take you Charles, Philip, Arthur, George, to be my husband. And maybe some of you remember that she didn't get it right. She said, I take you, Philip Charles, Arthur George. I wondered if that was an omen that day of things not to go right in that sad relationship. But it's a good thing she was faced with only four names out of all the things that might have been said about her husband. Because besides having four names, He has many, many titles. And I think it's a good thing that Diana didn't have to say Charles, Philip, Arthur, George, Prince of Wales, Duke of Cornwall, heir apparent, chairman of the trusts, knight of Bath, and colonel-in-chief of the royal regiment. And there's a few more that Prince Charles carries as titles. But, you know, he doesn't even begin to have the longest list, does he? 
of titles or names given to one individual. I would think that honor, uh, certainly, and that uniqueness has to be accorded to someone who was not born a royal at all, but born a Galilean peasant. The Bible gives literally dozens and scores of names and titles and offices to Jesus Christ in glorifying Him. You call Him Jesus, you call Him Christ, you call Him Lord. And I would just give you a few more samples, and these don't even completely scratch the surface. You could call Him along with the Scriptures, Alpha and Omega, Arm of the Lord, Author and Finisher of Faith, Christ, Cornerstone, Day Spring, Desire of Nations, Good Shepherd, Great High Priest, Emmanuel, King of the Jews, Lamb of God, Light of the World, Man of Sorrows, Mediator, Morning Star, Prince of Peace, Redeemer, Rock, Son of David, Son of God, the Way, the Truth, the Life, and of course, still more. And you would not have exhausted Him whose names tell us the many facets of His marvelous glory. It's interesting what we'll do to get our names elevated in some way in this world. I was talking with a fellow pastor last week about the summer activities of his college-age son. This was a young man I had baptized 20 years ago, and I was interested in what he was doing. And my friend was telling me about him drawing near to the senior year of his studies in English literature and how he hopes to become a, an English professor of literature. And he has his sights on getting into a Ph.D. program in that field in an Ivy League university. And so he spent his summer uh, in an internship at Yale's Graduate School of Literature and also a second job in a New York publishing uh, house that, that publishes fine literature. And this man was stressing to me how it was so important for his son to get his name known, to get into the Ph.D. program. The, the professors in the great graduate departments have to know your name and have to recognize that you're someone with a little bit of promise. Isn't it interesting the things people will do to get their names in front of others? We're all glad for a little bit of prestige or honor, even if it's as simple a thing as uh, perhaps your, your place of work calling you the employee of the month and letting you park in the space that the employee of the month or the week gets to park in. And you feel good about that. Somebody's, well, you know, saying, you do a good job, and we recognize you, and that, that's nice. We like that. We all like to be recognized. I hope that we don't have to go to the kinds of lengths that some do of spending all their waking ambitions to build their name up, maybe even propping it up with all kinds of false things in their resume or promises made that they can never fulfill just so that the public will fawn at them and come around them. But there is a right and a biblical way for your name to be known. And I think that our passage today, while it is concerned with Christ, it is also concerned with us and how our names would be known. The last time we dealt with this passage, we were finishing, I did finish at verse 8, really, the grand example of Jesus Christ in His tremendous 
condescension from the heights of eternal pre-existence with God as the equal of God, then submerging himself as fully God and yet fully man at the same time, this great mystery involved in his incarnation. He didn't give up the Godhead, and yet he held back so many of the prerogatives and and things that were his to exercise so that he could be among us as a, a man of flesh, a real man, and then come and go to the deepest depths that verse 8, in just the span of a couple sentences, tells you there, he went so low, even to death, the worst death there is on a cross. Certainly, that shows the diving of Christ, if you will, from the highest pedestal there could be to the lowest pit there could be. Well, today, we look at verses 9 through 11 as the apex or the climax of this great passage that we mostly know so well. And we want to remember that Paul is giving us this teaching about Christ as an unforgettable example about giving of yourself when you could be the one receiving, of serving when you might be strutting, and of putting value on others when your every instinct might be to simply point all value to yourself. The Christian faith finds its central focus in Christ. And a week, weeks ago, we were looking at Paul saying here in verse 27 of chapter 1, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of Christ, worthy of the gospel. Live worthy of your Savior. He's still in that vein now as he points to Christ, and he's showing us that Christ should be our motivation for servanthood, for humility, for being concerned in a compassion. Not as a, you know, when he says, uh, look on the interests of others, he's not saying as a busybody, go find out about them and tell everybody. He's saying, get involved, care, pray, help, support, encourage. He's telling us that by the depths of his service, Jesus received exaltation from God. He received a greater name because he was willing to sacrifice rights and comfort and pride and esteem for himself. He modeled God's way to make a name for yourself. Now let's look at that. First of all, a very brief point from the beginning of verse 9. It may be too obvious to even say, but I think it needs to be stressed, that here we have a cause and effect relationship, and we see at the beginning of verse 9, even in the first word of verse 9, the cause of Jesus' exaltation. Verse 9 begins with the word, therefore, because of what we've just told you in 5 through 8, that he went to the lowest depth, because of that, as a direct cause springing from that, he was elevated by God to the highest place. Now, the principle of this that's at work was something Jesus himself spoke about in Matthew 23, 12. He said one time that uh, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And that principle comes out other places in the Scripture. An example might be uh, James 4.10. There again, it's said by James, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And even more specific, a passage like Hebrews 2.9, 
claims the effect of exaltation coming from the action of humility, where it says in Hebrews 2.9, Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, tasting death for everyone. In other words, that bitter, agonizing experience of the cross that verse 8 talks about is what led to the Father lifting him and exalting him in a cause and effect relationship. A reciprocal action, the lowest depth of servanthood, brings the soaring pinnacle of reward and exaltation. Now, that may be so obvious that we hardly need to say it, but we must. You see, if you were to diagram this passage with a line drawing, your, it would be a big V. Your line would go down to the bottom of verse 8, <clears throat> would go downward from the heights to the words, even death on a cross, and then it would go upwards. Therefore, God has highly exalted him cause and effect. All right, then the remainder of verse 9 and through 11, we see, I think, two main things being talked about in the exaltation of Christ, two different points. First of all, his past exaltation that is now in effect, and then secondly, especially in 10 and 11, his future exaltation that is yet to come. So for the second point, let's look at the past exaltation of Christ as Lord of all. We read, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. Let's be sure we understand as best we can. We're talking about great and glorious things here, things with mystery attached, but let's understand as well as we can from the Scripture what is meant here. I think most of you know that as honors to individuals go, a committee in Stockholm, Sweden, is the determining body of one of the greatest of all human honors any person could hope to win, and that, of course, is the Nobel Prize. Alfred Nobel, I believe his money came from the invention of dynamite, as I have discovered, and he gave quite a bit of a fortune to fund large cash awards that recognize someone that contributes to world peace or to great literature or chemistry or physics or various fields, as you know. These are announced every year. And let me tell you, if you can have the Nobel Prize, if you're an academician or or a politician, no matter what field you're in, that is no prize to be sniffed at. When the Nobel Committee calls and says, show up in Stockholm on whatever date, you know, April 2nd or something, to get your Nobel Prize, I don't think very many people have ever told them, oh, well, I'm too busy, I can't be bothered with something trivial like that. If you get a Nobel Prize, that is the, the largest gold star on your resume for the rest of your life. No higher honor can be accorded a human being almost in the, in the realms of human recognition of things. Well, here is Jesus said to have been elevated by his Father to the highest place. Hebrews 1.3 states it too. After he provided purification for sins, we sang this in our praise response earlier in the service. After he had provided this purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, Scripture teaches us that every Christian, the dead in Christ, upon death, our souls go to the presence of God. We go to heaven. 
And we witness marvelous, amazing things. We are elevated beyond this mortal world and all of its difficulties and pains and strife and sorrows and look upon God. Our souls will see God. That's a very high thing. But it's only of Jesus that it is said, Ephesians 4.10 says it, for example, he ascended high above the heavens. He didn't simply go to heaven. He has a place that is even above heaven. Now, he was always called son of the highest, even before he was incarnate as a man. He was fully God. Be reminded of that. But in his triumph over death and his ascension, he has something more. And maybe people puzzle over, well, what, what is that? How can you have more than being God? In other words, how can you have more than, than what Jesus had at the first? In fact, you would listen perhaps to him praying in John seventeen five, the high priestly prayer before the cross. You remember what Jesus said, part of that prayer? He prayed, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. It sounds like Jesus is saying, Father, the culmination of this cross on the other side of it is going to be my getting back to where I was. Now, getting back to where he was is no mean thing. It was equality with God. It was glory at God's right hand. But somehow the Scripture is telling us in passages like Philippians 2.9 that he got even more. How are we to understand that? You know, you can't expand being God, can you? You know, if you are all of God, you can't be more God than you were. So how are we to understand this? Well, I think the key is not to think of the divine essence of Christ. It could not be made greater. But it's rather of position, if you will, or office that he occupies. I'm going to use a crude analogy, and it has a shortcoming that I'll tell you what that is in a minute. But think of it in a business mode, if you will. Those of you in business know that a CEO is a title to aspire to, because if you're the CEO, chief executive officer of a company, you're at the top. You earn the really big bucks, and you're the man in charge. Now, what if, for example, just to use this, it might help a little, even though, again, it has a flaw in it, You have a a man who founded a company that was wildly successful and became an international company, and now this man is, say, 65 years old, and and he says, look, I'm going to take it a little easier. I don't want to run this thing day to day. I'm going to step back. I'll take the title of president and make my son, who is now the vice president, the CEO. Now, everybody in that company would understand that the son is now going to run the company. Day-to-day operations, most of the lines of power will come to his desk. The president is a nice honorary office, and he'll be there at board meetings and so on, but the CEO runs the company. At least in some way, that is helpful for us to think about the position of Christ here. Now, the problem with that is that I don't want to imply and must not imply for a moment that God the Father has retired. God has not retired. All right, that's the flaw in the analogy. But the sense in which the son is now being invested with responsibility and with position and with authority to lead and rule and govern that apparently was not his before is an accurate understanding because what the son now is 
is the Lord. The CEO in the Bible is the Lord. And this helps us understand what it means that Jesus was given a name above every name. Somebody says, what's that name? Jesus? No, he was called Jesus before, all through his ministry from his infancy. He was Yeshua, which comes from Joshua. It means him who saves. He isn't given that name. The name he's given is the name Lord in verse 11. Now, just let me remind you that in Isaiah 42.8 and other places in the Old Testament, God revealed himself through prophets and said, I am the Lord. I am Jehovah, or Yahweh, as they said it. I am the ultimate. That is my name, Lord. I don't share that name with other people. And the Israelites saw that name as properly so holy, so awesome, that they didn't go around saying, the Lord this, the Lord that. They wouldn't say Jehovah. They had a shorthand that they would say or write without writing the name or saying the name. They would think it was blasphemous to even think you could utter this great and unique name. Well, you see, now we're saying, and Paul is writing here by the Holy Spirit and saying that Jesus ascended to the highest, to the throne of power, is now given the name Lord the name of God. And therefore, we get the earliest and shortest and most concise of all the Christian creeds. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who says with all understanding, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God. He rules. He is my God. He is my way of knowing God. When I see him, I see the Father, and I am willingly bow before him and saying, he is all in all. He holds the reins of the universe. The Scripture teaches that God has put the Son in the position of final judge. You know, people talk about, well, we'll face God someday at the second coming of Christ and the final judgment We won't be judged by the Father. Read your Bible carefully. We'll be judged by the Son. To the Son, this has been delegated. And so, you see what a radical, revolutionary thing it is to say Jesus Christ is the only Lord in a society like these Philippians lived in, in a Roman colony governed by a Roman uh, Caesar in Rome and and various sub-authorities out there in Philippi, where they were asked in some cases, to give a loyalty oath to Caesar who dared to call himself the Lord, and sometimes annually to show that you were a loyal Roman citizen, you had to come to an altar, pick up a pinch of incense, and drop it in a flame, and utter the words, Kyrios Caesar, Caesar is Lord. And if you couldn't say that, you were in trouble, because Caesar claimed the position of absolute authority. Well, Christians said a revolutionary thing. No, sir, Caesar is not Lord. God is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And it got them killed because of that very issue more than once. The words, Jesus Christ is Lord, becomes the distilled essence of what a Christian is and what a Christian declares. Those radical words are our basic creed. Now, quickly, I speak of a third point because Philippians 2, 10, and 11 
speak of or imply a still future recognition of Christ as Lord over all, a day when every knee universally and every tongue are going to recognize this lordship. Do they recognize it now? Are you kidding? Of course they don't. The name Jesus Christ, to many people you know or you experience, I would dare say I'm not indicting any particular construction company or individual in it, but, you know, here we have a construction project that's uh, it's an eternal one, by the way. It's, it's going to be going on for the next 50 years out here on this road in front of us. And you know, knowing construction workers, here, here's the place where Christ is worshipped and people say Jesus Christ is Lord, and I would think within 100 yards of us on a daily basis. The name of Jesus Christ is not used as Lord. I would think it is used as a thoughtless, blasphemous curse, as you know it is by many people. But the Scripture says, and by the way, did you know the, the most commonly quoted text or most often quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament is from Psalm 110, verse 1. What does Psalm 110, verse 1 say that's so important that it's the most frequently quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament? It says this, the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, that, that transfer I was talking about of the father elevating his son to the chief executive office is the text that, of the Old Testament that the New Testament is most frequently found to quote. Now, of course, this reign of Christ, this rule of Christ is, is something that isn't seen to other than the eye of faith today. If it was seen universally and easily with the eye of nature, where do we get the Taliban? Where do we get wretched deaths from cancer? It doesn't seem to many eyes, and people will challenge and say, oh, well, your God's supposed to be ruling. How come this is happening? Well, the Scripture tells us that Satan is a defeated enemy, but he's still a powerful enemy like the the pit bull on a 20-foot chain. He can still wreak a lot of disaster within the range that his chain reaches. But he's defeated. His defeat is sure. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says when Christ returns and and is exhibited in glory and brings to a close history as we know it now, he will then hand over the kingdom to God, the, the kingdom of this world, to God the Father, because his foot will be on the neck of every enemy, including Satan. And so we ask ourselves, well, when is this going to happen that every knee bows and every tongue confesses? It's going to happen at that day when Christ appears. Universally, everyone will see it. Everyone will do it. Not people of faith only, but those for whom that recognition is not a friendly thing to do at all. There will be people who's, who are cursing the name of Christ today whose tongues, I think, will freeze as they have to gag and say, Jesus Christ is Lord, that they never said before. And they will not be saying it as a declaration of saving faith. They will be saying it when it is long too late for it to be that. Do you realize that if this is going to be a universal event that Caiaphas, the wicked, unscrupulous, ungodly judge over Jesus, is going to one day say Jesus Christ is Lord? Nero Caesar is going to say it. 
Herod's going to say it. Pilate's going to say it. Hitler's going to say it. The Taliban is going to say it. And every godless man and woman you know is going to have to say it. But not in faith. Because then it'll be too late. One commentator on this passage in Philippians writes this, the final confession that is made in response to the visible final manifestation of Christ's glory will not be a saving confession for millions. It will be grudgingly acknowledged by the overmastering force of divine awe and come from lips that are still unbelieving just as they were through their whole earthly existence. He said, all will submit, all will confess that Christ is Lord, but not all will be saved. Because there is an hour then when it is too late. Now in closing, if we would step back from this passage, and what grand things are in this, these verses 6 through 11. Step back from it a minute and ask yourself again, why did Paul write about Christ in this way? This, some call it a hymn to Christ. Well, go back to verse 3. If your Bible's still open, look at verse 3 because it's all about verse 3. Here's the practical application. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others to be better than yourself. It was to reinforce and motivate that that all this is written. And so the main application, it seems very clear to me, having heard this about a glorious Christ who stepped from heaven's preexistent glory to a cross of shame and then was elevated again to a new position of power and authority where he rules and reigns, is all there to say this. Christian, how dare you indulge in egotism and self-promotion and putting down other people by your sarcastic manner in light of who your Savior is and what he did. You know, Augustine was just about one of the wisest and greatest men of God from the time of the apostles to the Reformation, certainly. He stands out like a Mount Everest on the landscape of church history. And Augustine was not just very wise and knowledgeable, he was also godly. And he wrote this near the end of his life, and I am getting old enough to learn a little bit of the wisdom of what he said. Here's what Augustine wrote. I have learned only near the end of my long life that there are three essentials to be prized in the Christian life. Now, I said this man was one of the most godly and wise of all Christians from the time of the apostles to the time of the reformers. What did he think were the three essentials to be prized in the Christian life. Are you ready? Augustine said they are humility, humility, and humility. How right he was. And you might say to me, wait a minute, are you telling me that I'm supposed to be able to live up to the high exalted, unbelievable example of Jesus who was God, who gave all that up and did all. I can't do that. The bar's set too high. You're asking too much. Human beings can't imitate him. Paul would say this, wait a minute. I'm not asking you to imitate him in your human strength. Here's what I'm saying. If you belong to this Lord, 
by faith calling him your master and bowing before him day by day and putting exclusive trust in him, then this Lord dwells in you. And if this Lord dwells in you, then I am not asking a foreign thing of you to say, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, because Christ Jesus inhabits you. And he's not asking you to do this in pale imitation by your own vain efforts. He's asking with your transformed mind and will and the new power he gives to crucify self and pride on a day-to-day basis. You never crucify it once forever. You do it daily. He will enable you to serve in humility. Others first becomes the byword, doesn't it? People who put others first show themselves to be Christians. Others first is, a, is what a husband does who puts the curb on his pride and says, I have to actually put myself to death today to cherish my wife. Others first are what elders do who don't vaunt their office and their superiority over the congregation, but do what Peter said, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would make a name for yourself, there's a way to do it. It is first to put all your trust in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, who is Lord of creation, and Lord of history. Secondly, knowing he is in you. He indwells you. He has changed you. He has transformed you from death to life to lay claim to the fact that his humble mind can be in you as it was in himself. This is God's gift. This is God's intention. This is God's plan for the humility of the Christian life. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we all need instruction here. Pride swaggers. Oh, how ugly is my pride. Who am I, Lord? Who is any of us to be proud, to think we are something, to think we are better, Teach us to serve. Teach us to put away the seeking of credit. Teach us to look upon those who may seem more ignorant than we, less educated than we, less wealthy, less privileged, and say there is a creation of God. There is the image of God. What can I do to serve that person? Teach us what Augustine knew. Humility. Humility and humility, all for your sake and your honor through Jesus the Lord. Amen.